Imagine it's April 1983. President Ronald Reagan was in his third year of his first term, and the United States is conducting the largest fleet exercise ever held in the North Pacific, Fleet Exercise 83-1. This exercise consisted of 40 ships, 300 aircraft, and over 23,000 crew members. The ships worked in a counterclockwise pattern through the northern Pacific within just a few air flight minutes of the Soviet coastline. United States aircraft and ships attempt to provoke the Soviets into reacting. If they do, this will allow U.S. naval intelligence to study the Soviet radar characteristics, their aircraft ability, and their tactical maneuvers. The Far Eastern Economic Review would say of this move by the United States that, in classical naval theory, a demonstration of this kind shows your prospective opponent that he is outclassed off his own coastline and had better stick close to home if he knows what's good for him. After almost two weeks of grandstanding maneuvers, the American fleet turns and heads toward home. Moscow is by no means impressed with this display of arrogance from the Americans, but sources close to the Kremlin do confirm that there was a subtle appreciation for the audacity of the naval commanders. But when you're a six-year-old me, you were oblivious to any and all of that. My first memory of anything that might be out of the norm at this time would probably be during this same time in my first grade year. I remember being in the hallway, all of us as students facing toward the cinder block wall, on our knees crouched over with our faces to the floor and our hands covering the back of our neck. I also remember being in the classroom earlier that same day, crammed under our desk in a similar but not exactly same position. I went home that day excited to tell my mom about the emergency drills that we had done at school, but I was also curious as to why we had never had a tornado or an earthquake drill at our house. The following day at school, as we began our mandatory first grade brain trust group that always met and debriefed on the previous evening's events, our peaceful existence was rocked when one of our friends came in in mid-conversation, extremely panicked, wondering why we hadn't done a bomb drill the previous day at school. Being rattled, but not wanting to show it, I decided at that point that, as the self-appointed spokesman for the group, I needed to confront the teacher and find out why she had been so negligent and hadn't properly equipped us with said bomb drill skills. I had no idea what a bomb drill was, or for that matter, why I felt so necessary to confront our teacher other than the sheer panic over the fact that the word bomb had been used in the middle of our brain trust discussion. If I'm being honest, I can't remember the explanation that my mom or my teacher gave me on that particular day. You see, I grew up in the latter stages of this era. I still remember vividly watching both President Reagan and Gorbachev shake hands, watch them smile and wave to the cameras. I still remember very vividly sitting with my family in our living room watching as the Berlin Wall fell. But to say that I really knew and appreciated what was happening during this time would, well, just simply be a reach. The impact of the necessity of bomb drills, bomb shelters and governmental plans for evacuation in the event of nuclear catastrophe was not quite as urgent for me 
as it was for the previous few generations. Now, as I've gotten older and as I have fallen more and more into the rabbit hole, and maybe the more I realize that we're right in the middle of a 2.0 version of something, my love and my fascination for this era has grown. And learning about the events that took place before my time has at times consumed me. And from that consumption comes this series. From Mad Lab Studios, I'm Ben James, and this is Beyond the Walls series on the Cold War. Consider that it's late May in 1915. You're an 18-year-old living in New Jersey. You've been keeping up with the war in Europe, and over the past few days you've heard the reports of the sinking of the Lusitania. The question that you and many others have is the topic of conversation amongst the patrons today in your monthly trip to the barbershop. You listen for a while as each person in the shop gives their own unique take on the situation. The loss of lives, particularly American lives, seems to be a part of each person's take. The question that no one seems to be asking is the one that you can no longer repress as you sit in your chair. When do you think President Wilson will have the backbone enough to send our troops over there and make them pay for what they did? Everyone in the shop seems a little bit surprised and taken aback, not by the question, but by the fact that it was you that voiced it, and probably with the bluntness of your statement as well. You pick up on it, and then you try to soften your statement a bit by adding, I mean, you guys really don't think that we're just going to sit back and do nothing, do you? Well, the word is we're doing everything we can to stay out of the war, your barber replies. Another gentleman interjects, President Wilson seems to be content with asking for an apology for the Germans, like... Like it was some kind of accident or something. Oops, my bad, comes a sarcastic comment from the man sitting next to you as he scoffs. Fellas, this president isn't like old Teddy. Do something like this on his watch, and that ship isn't even on the ocean floor before our boys are on their way over there. Everyone nods their agreement. Did you read Roosevelt's letter criticizing Wilson's handling of this? I think he's like most of us. I think he wants action too, but I guess that we'll just sit back and watch right along with the rest of the nation as our president does nothing. No way that'll happen. You take American lives and, and you'll get the horns. The barber chuckles. I don't think that's quite the same, son, but we do seem to be pretty serious about not getting involved in other people's conflicts. With each word, you're growing more and more frustrated and find yourself saying, other people's conflicts? It became our conflict when they decided to sink a ship that was carrying over a hundred of our people. Settle down, son. You're preaching to the choir here. Besides, it's pretty obvious that we're not making any diplomatic decisions from this shop. Still, I mean, we should be doing something, right? I mean, anything. I mean, if, if our own government won't do something, then, well, well then maybe... Maybe I will. Really? 
says your barber as he pulls the clippers away from your head. Please, go ahead and take a minute. Tell us what you're going to do. Well, if we don't have enough backbone to go to war as a country to, uh, to protect our own, then I guess I will. I'll just go over there and, and by myself and I'll fight. Your barber smiles wryly, bringing his clippers back to the top of your head and begins to cut. Well then, soldier, we better make sure that you have a haircut suited for a military man. The young American in the barber shop that day is Arthur Empey, and yes, he did wind up going to fight not long after that, and he would fight for the British years before America made its entrance into World War I. So what is the Cold War? When did it start, and why are we talking about the story of a soldier in World War I? The answer to what it is can be answered in various forms, and we're really not going to make much of an attempt at answering that with a concrete statement as we will allow the information over the course of this series itself to lead you into your own determination. Many will answer the when it started in different ways. And we here at Beyond the Walls, we're going to take this episode and give you what we consider, in our opinion, to be the most logical launching point of the Cold War. Hence, the answer to why the World War I story. Some trace the roots of the Cold War all the way back to the latter part of the 19th century. Those people would point back to this time and base the Cold War beginning on its ideological differences when Russia experienced a governmental split known as the Bolshevik Revolution. And we have no interest in trying to refute these claims because, quite honestly, we believe them to be correct. And even though the Soviet Union and the United States would be considered allies for two of the greatest conflicts in history, during the first half of the 20th century, one would be remiss to think that their political ideologies would be anywhere close to being on the same page. The first of these conflicts that the two countries were allies in was the Great War, or World War I, as it's better known now. And it's there, that the greatest conflict the world had known to that point is where, at least to us, we find the most natural launching point of the Cold War. This thought is not a result of America's late-stage entrance into the war while the Soviets fought from day one. It's not because of the massive amount of casualties sustained by the Soviets, nearly 1.2 million, while the U.S. sustained just over 100,000. Nor is it about the flourishing of the American economy as a result of the war, while the Russian economy was dismal. But maybe it was more along the lines of the reason for the incredible boom in the American economy during World War I. And that was because of the industrial, international demands for arms, armaments, and supplies that were being placed during the four years of this conflict. In our estimation, there is yet to be a decade, or a conflict for that matter, to see more technological advancements on the battlefield than during World War I. But with that, and because of that, we want to take this episode and introduce you to some of the most impactful technological advancements in the World War I era, or to many, a time where the first arms race of the Cold War began.
Imagine you're a 19-year-old signal officer tucked away in a dugout in a trench on the Eastern Front in December of 1916. There's a lull in the fighting as neither side is trying to advance into no man's land. Out of the rare, uncomfortable silence that you're experiencing, there begins to come a strange throbbing noise slowly coming from behind you. As you begin to get even more uncomfortable with how close and how unfamiliar these sounds are, you can no longer restrain your urge to see what the source of the noise is. So you decide to take a chance and look above the edge of the trench. This is something that you've seen result in too many deaths of your friends and fellow soldiers, but there's something inside of you that just has to know what this is. As you slowly peek above the top of the trench, you see something you've never seen before. Three mechanical monsters that, at first look, appear to be ready to fall on their faces. But, somehow, their tails and the two little wheels at the back hold them down and keep them level. You hear one of the soldiers below ask, What's going on out there? You struggle to find words to describe what you see, but you try your best as you answer, It's big metal things with two sets of wheels that go around the body. What? The other soldier answers confused as he pushes himself up so he can see too. These don't resemble anything that you've ever seen. They have a huge bulge on each side and they have machine guns on swivels on both sides and you, you honestly have no clue where the engine is. It feels like it takes them forever to get to where you are. But while it's still breaking day, you continue to hear the steady drone of heavy engines. And by the time the sun rises, they're on your front line, right on time. Germans must have heard them as well, and although they also have no idea what's going on, they promptly begin to lay down a heavy curtain of fire on your front line. As a result of the constant gunfire, you keep your heads down. Every now and then, you just can't help but pop up and take a look as to how the machines are progressing. But you also can't help but allow a small smile to come across your face as you see them advance. Actually, it's all you can do not to outright cheer. Until, instead of going past your trench and onto the German lines, the three machines decide to straddle your front line. They stop and then open up a murderous line of machine gun fire pinning you and the entire trench down both left and right. You can't believe what's happening. Here they sit, crushing the sides of your trench, all the while their machine guns are swiveling around and firing like mad. In the midst of the chaos, you lie face down. You then take a moment to look around. Everyone in the trench is taking cover, except for one man, your colonel. He's moving around, shouting at the top of his voice, runner, runner. Go tell those machines to stop firing at once. At once, I say. By now, not only are the machines firing on your line, but the enemy fire is increasing as well. Seemingly giving no thought to his own personal safety, your colonel runs forward, jumps on one of the beasts, and furiously rains blows with his cane on the side in an attempt to get their attention. Even though no one inside hears him, they finally realize that they're on the wrong trench. And then, as slowly as they moved on top of you, they begin to move on, flattening everything they think should be flattened, and they seem to be thoroughly enjoying themselves. As you shake off the terror of these things being on your position, you begin to take up positions behind them, 
Other Allied troops take over the village, or what was left of it, and others dig in on the line ordered for you to occupy before the attack. That was a detailed account of Bert Cheney as he and his fellow frontline soldiers first encountered the war-changing remedy to the barbed wire, trench, and no-man's-land problem that we now know as the tank. War at this time was thought to be that of movement, but when it came to the prolonged standstills, the trench warfare and no-man's-land that became staples of World War I, the solution to this stagnant state became the automobile. Well, maybe the automobile on steroids. First developed in 1915, the tank saw its first action in September of the following year in the form of a British version. But, even as allies in this war, the French couldn't be outdone by the British, and they soon rolled out their own version of the tank with its Renault FT, which gave us the initial classic tank look. With trench warfare being a staple in World War I, and movement over long periods of time being almost non-existent, the bunkers and dugouts that developed trenches provided became prime real estate. Using fire as a way to drive out the enemy can be traced all the way back to the Byzantine and Chinese empires. But to extricate your enemies while maintaining the structural integrity of their trenches took something with a little more finesse than the grenade offered, which was really the only option you had at this time. And welcome to the scene, the modern flamethrower. Which, if you're around my age, it's hard to say without thinking of yogurt in the retail product store in Mel Brooks's parody classic, Spaceballs. The flamethrower could burn out your enemy while maintaining the structural integrity of the trench that they were occupying. The flamethrower was first used by Germans at the Battle of Verdun in February of 1915 and quickly became a must-have weapon for both sides. With every podcast you do, research should be a top priority. As I speak, I am looking at a computer screen that has so many tabs open, I've lost count. While a nearly endless amount of sources are critical for you to find balance and accuracy in the information that you're presenting in your episodes, it's just as critical to have a primary work that all of your research is built around. For our series here at Beyond the Walls on the Cold War, our primary resource is the book titled The Cold War by John Lewis Gaddis. It's a brilliantly arresting historical work, and it takes us as never before to the time when the world stood on the brink of destruction. In 1945, World War II came to an end, but a whole new terror was only just beginning. Here's the truth behind every spy thriller you've ever read. Why America and the Soviet Union became locked in a deadly stalemate. How close we came to nuclear catastrophe. What was really going on in the minds of leaders from Stalin to Mao, from Reagan to Gorbachev, and how secret agents plotted, and how German holidaymakers helped the Berlin Wall fall. It's a story of crisis talks and subterfuge. It's a story of tyrants and power struggles and of ordinary people changing the course of history. Visit our show notes at the conclusion of this episode where you can find a link to purchase your copy of the Dean of Cold War Historians book, The Cold War, by John Lewis Gaddis. Imagine you find yourself in a dugout of a trench that you have been in for over a month now. 
It's almost completely dark and there's still a few shots ringing out, but overall the fighting has seemed to subside, at least for the night. It's at this time of day that you usually find yourself allowing your mind to wander. This time you travel back home to what seems like a lifetime ago. You see yourself as you stand up and get out of the barbershop chair with your fresh new haircut. You made some pretty brash statements in the past few minutes and you meant every one of them, even if they did sound ridiculous to the others. After a few conversations and maybe some gray area paperwork, you soon board a ship to England where you enlist in the British Army. At this time, it was a serious violation of our neutrality law, but no one seemed to mind, especially you. And now, here you are, manning a trench on the front lines. It's been apparent all evening that conditions are favorable for a gas attack. There was a slight breeze blowing from the enemy's direction and fog was threatening to take hold just a little bit earlier than normal this evening. There's a new guy at the periscope and as you sit on the fire step cleaning your rifle, he leans in your direction, uncertain as to if he is doing the right thing when he says, there's sort of a greenish yellow cloud rolling along the ground out in front. It's coming right. You don't wait for him to finish. You know exactly what it is. You jump up, grab your bayonet, and sound the alarm by banging an empty shell. At that very same instant, alarms start ringing up and down the trench for everyone to don respirators. Gas travels quietly, so you can't lose any time. You found out that you generally have about 18 to 20 seconds in which to don and adjust your gas helmet properly. For a minute, chaos reigns in the trench. Everyone is adjusting their helmets, bombers are running here and there, and men turn out of the dugouts with fixed bayonets to man the fire step. The gas is heavier than air and soon fills the trenches and dugouts where it's been known to lurk for two or three days until the air is purified by means of large chemical sprayers. But for now, you have to work quickly, as the Germans usually follow a gas attack with an advance of their infantry. You turn and notice that your friend, who was standing to your right, was too slow in getting his mask on. You watch him, what seems to be in slow motion as he begins to sink to the ground, and then begins clutching at his throat. And after a few spasmatic twists, you see his body go lifeless. It's beyond terrible to see him die, but you know that you're powerless to help him. As you look back up, something catches your eye. In the corner of the traverse at the end of the trench, you see a little muddy dog, one of the company's pets, lying dead with his two paws over his nose. You shake your head, trying to loose your thoughts of the last few moments, and you begin to train your machine gun on top of the trench. That's when they start to come over. Bayonets glistening, German soldiers, all of them in their respirators, which have a large snout in front. As you see them, you can't help but notice that they look like something from a horrible nightmare. But who are you kidding? You're in a living, waking nightmare, and a nightmare that you volunteered for. Suddenly, your ears burst from a loud crack in your helmet. Your head begins to swim. And with your throat dry and a heavy pressure beginning to weigh on your lungs, you slowly realize that your helmet is leaking. The trench begins to whine like a snake and the sandbags that are used to fortify and protect the trench now appear to be floating in the air. The noise surrounding you begins to fade. 
You begin to sink onto the fire step, and it feels like sharp razors begin to pierce your skin. And then, slowly, everything turns black. That's the continuation of the story of Arthur Empey as he recalled in 1917. His gas mask had been punctured by a bullet that grazed his left ear. He had awakened three hours later to find the battle over. At this point, he was not only faced with the worst headache and stomach nausea that he'd ever felt in his life, but he also had the task of helping to bury all the dead, both theirs and his. The first attempt to use large-scale gas was used by the Germans on Russian positions in January of 1915, but this time it was so cold that the poison froze in the shells that it was contained in. And on April 22nd of that same year, these same Germans successfully released chlorine gas towards the French colonial troops. The colonial troops were able to fall back and realign before the gas reached them, but that successful release began a miserable new chapter in an already miserable war. Airplanes were something that had been around for roughly a decade before the war began. There was no doubt that from the beginning, the airplane would be a huge advantage to whichever side could figure out how to best utilize them in actual combat situations. There were some challenges facing them though. Primarily, propeller blades that got in the way of the pilot shooting machine guns. And by in the way, I mean that the props would get mowed through with bullets. And as the props were the primary means of remaining safely in the air, this was a hiccup that needed to be solved quickly. In their attempt to do so, the U.S. Army tried tying machine guns to the side of their plane with a leather strap. And on a side note, even back in the early 20th century, I think we would have expected something more from the U.S. Army than basically what sounds like my kind of an engineering fix to something, minus the duct tape. But one of the main problems with this fix is that it required an extra gunner to fire the weapon. The gunner represented a problem for the aircraft from both a stability and a weight standpoint. Not to mention, with the amount of casualties happening on the ground, they tried to keep as many bodies there as possible. They also tried mounting the gun higher above the aircraft by taking a single bracket, extending it behind the pilot, far above the plane. Now let's just take a moment and picture that, if you will. Not only was the awkward aesthetics a problem, but the accuracy was just a little bit over 0%. The Germans were the first to install a device that was called a synchronizer, and this synchronizer was developed in 1915 by a Dutch designer. This device used a timing mechanism in the propeller shaft that allowed shots to be fired between the rotating propeller blades. And with the Germans first to get their hands on this, the other side had a ways to catch up. The German U-boat campaign would see millions of tons of Allied cargo destroyed and would also result in the death of tens of thousands of both soldiers and civilians during the war, and also the Lusitania that we referred to at the beginning of this episode. The eventual solution to these underwater nightmares was the depth charge. Controlled by a hydrostatic piston that measured water pressure, these charges could be set to go off at a predetermined depth. The first effective depth charge was developed at the beginning of 1916, and the first German U-boat was destroyed by one on March 22nd of that same year. And although it falls outside of the timeline of either world war, one of the more riveting stories in which depth charges play a role 
can be found in the 1962 incident just off of the Bahamas during the Cuban Missile Crisis, told in our trailer episode for this series. The depth charges would have just been underwater clappers if you had no way of determining the location of the German U-boats. Onto the scene comes an invention developed by Canadian Reginald Fessenden, the hydrophone. Like many technological advancement of this time, the hydrophone wasn't developed because of the war. But also like the other advancements, it came to the world's attention because of it. The hydrophone came about a few years earlier as a result of the Titanic disaster to help vessels locate icebergs. The problem with the original design of this underwater microphone was that it could only record distance of an underwater object, not the direction in which the object was found. Upon multiple calibrations, it became effective for both calculations of distance and direction of an object up to 25 miles away. As a result of the accuracy of the hydrophone, depth charges became a highly reliable U-boat destroyer in April of 1916. Imagine it's November 14th. 1910. You're a former chauffeur and race car driver in Hampton Roads, Virginia. Oh, and let's not forget that you're an amateur aircraft pilot as well. That's actually why you find yourself here today. You're on board the USS Birmingham. Before you left the Norfolk Navy Yard in Portsmouth on this frigid Monday morning, the Birmingham had been fitted with an 83-foot-long wooden ramp. You encounter fog intermittent rain, and even occasional small hail as you steam across Hampton Roads. To say that these are less than ideal conditions would be an understatement. You sit anxiously near your 50 horsepower plane, which had been fitted out with light pontoons, and for nearly four hours you wait for a break in the weather. Then at 3.16 p.m. you see your chance. A momentary break between rain showers is all you need. You sprint to get into your plane and gun the engine without waiting for the cruiser to hoist the anchor and get underway. People begin screaming their warning at you from the deck because the ship's movement is supposed to provide you with the extra lift that most experts agree that it needs. You don't care though. You didn't get here by playing it safe and you may not get another break in the miserable weather to do this. So with that thought, you release the aircraft's brakes. The plane begins to roar down the wooden incline, picking up speed with each turn of its shaking tires. As soon as you reach the edge, you go directly into a dive, plunging nearly 40 feet to the surface of the water before you finally wrestle the shaking aircraft into a climb at the last second. Observers watching from a dozen boats give out involuntary gasps as the plane's wheels and propeller thrash through the waves. Flying spray drenches them, and your goggles too, making it impossible for you to see as you wrench the struggling airplane from the grips of the waves and into a torturously long and slow climb over the mouth of Hampton Roads. This is the account of Eugene Eli, who was the first to successfully take off from the deck of a ship in November of 1910. It wasn't until May of 1912 when the first successful launch of an aircraft from a moving ship happened when Commander Charles Romney Sampson, pilot of the short S-27 pontoon biplane, took off from the deck of the HMS Hibernia. The Hibernia wasn't a true aircraft carrier, though, because planes couldn't land on its deck. They had to take off from there and set down in the water 
and wait patiently to be retrieved later. The first actual aircraft carrier was the HMS Furious, a 786-foot-long battle cruiser of the British Navy. It was squadron commander Edward Downing who became the first person to land a plane on a moving ship when he landed on the HMS Furious on August 2, 1917. Next on Beyond the Walls, we take a look at the struggles of relations with the Allied countries at the conclusion of World War II. The industrialization of America propelled the United States into the 21st century, while the unrest in Soviet Russia propelled them into a revolutionary period that would come to define the latter half of the 20th century. From Mad Lab Studios, this is Beyond the Walls. We hope you've enjoyed this episode. If you did, subscribe on Apple Podcast, Stitcher, Spotify, iHeartRadio, Google Podcast, or wherever you're listening now. Check out the show notes to learn more about this episode, details you might have missed, and additional tech utilized during World War I. You can find the show and me on social media. Follow us on Twitter at Walls underscore Beyond and me at SBJames2494. Thank you for listening. This episode was written, edited, and produced by me, Ben James, and was researched by those of us still inside the walls. Myself, Aaron Baldwin, Michael Gullahue, and Brandon Bradley. Until next time.